We're starting in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went, proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray this morning, Lord, that we would approach it with the reverence that is due to it and to you. Lord, what it says, we pray, would pierce our hearts. You might help us to see Christ in all his glory, in his suffering, in his exaltation. Lord, that we might be encouraged right where we are to think about what it means to be a sojourner in the midst of suffering. Spirit, help us to see now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few weeks, I'll have the privilege to baptize my son, John Harper, Lord willing. And this morning, we've witness, I believe, eight baptisms between the two hours. And it's an incredible moment coming alongside these parents and trusting in God's promises to these children. But I wonder, do you ever ask, what if God really answers our prayers for these children? What if they really come to trust in Christ alone? What if they love him with all their heart and they're captivated by the gospel and they long to serve him? We would all rejoice, I think we'd say. We would rejoice that God does that great work. But how would you respond if God's work in their lives meant that they might face hardship or suffering? What if they were mocked or rejected in high school for loving Jesus? Or what if they were singled out in a college class for being a Christian? What if they were passed over for a job because of something they believed? Or what if they were called to be a missionary in a hard place? As a parent or a friend, how would you respond to that? if that was what happened with your child as he or she grew up? Would you encourage them to be faithful even if it meant suffering for Christ? Or would you encourage them instead to play it safe even if it meant disobeying God? What is your theology of suffering? That's really the question this morning. We all have a theology of suffering. It's what helps us understand how to view suffering and how we respond to it in real life. And the thing is, if we don't think about it much, it's probably shaped more by the culture around us and our preferences than the Word of God. So we come this morning to this text about suffering as a Christian, and I want to approach it from three angles. First, how do we tend to relate to suffering? That is, what is our default theology of suffering? Second, how are we called to relate to suffering? In other words, how would the Lord rearrange or reframe 
our perspective? And third, how does God himself relate to suffering? So first, how do we tend to relate to suffering? What's our default? And that's really an easy question. We don't like it. We'd rather avoid it. We think suffering is the opposite of blessing. We think suffering is the enemy. And then we live in a place where many people have resources to try to control and prevent suffering from happening. So a passage like 1 Peter 3 is doubly hard for us to hear. But before we dive into these words, let's go back into Peter's story. It's a flashback from Matthew 16, and you don't have to turn there, but it was a big day. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter responds for the group, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we read in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So what's Peter's theology of suffering? If you look at Matthew 16 and then you go over to 1 Peter 3, you might ask, is this the same person? Because in Matthew 16, Peter is excited about Jesus' person, but horrified by Jesus' plan. Peter doesn't think Jesus should suffer. That's not his idea of what the Messiah should be. And Peter probably doesn't think, if I'm with him, I shouldn't suffer either. So Peter takes Jesus aside, which is never a good idea, and he rebukes him and says, this shall never happen to you. And then a few chapters later, as we know, Peter takes up his sword and actually tries to prevent Jesus' arrest. Can you relate to young Peter? Do you ever want Jesus' person without Jesus' plan? It's really Christianity without the cross. Christianity without the cost of discipleship. And there's a reason, when you think about that, that the prosperity gospel is so appealing to many people. So when the topic of suffering comes up, it's natural for us to look for the door. How do I get out of here? Because we're afraid. And that fear actually leads us to order our lives around the wrong question. We ask, what must I do to keep myself and my loved ones from suffering? On some Sundays, we profess our faith using these words from the Heidelberg Catechism. We say, he preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. But do we really believe that? When following Jesus gets hard, it's not just about a hair falling from our head. It can be tougher than that. Friends, suffering for our faith is part of the sojourn. We're not home yet. We've been saying that for months. And the road we travel, sometimes smooth, sometimes rocky, we are swimming upstream in the world. We're different. And the collision is going to happen sooner or later. And younger Peter didn't have a place for suffering in his belief system. But you come to 1 Peter, and now the older apostle, he keeps writing about the suffering of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and he keeps calling Christians to suffer well. So we read our passage, and it's clear Peter has this new perspective on suffering. He, he knows sometimes we do good, and no one harms us. That's verse 13. But he also knows that sometimes we do good, and we suffer. That's in verse 14. So what changed? How did Peter go from a man who took up his sword to a man who took up his cross? And how could we go from people who are just trying to avoid suffering to people who really want to be faithful, even if that means suffering for Christ? 
This kind of suffering actually can come in many different forms. It may seem a little strange to hear suffering for Christ in our culture because we're not under the threat of martyrdom or violence on a regular basis, but have we ever been mocked or teased or excluded or rejected or passed over? Or have we just felt out of step with what's going on around us because we're Christians? If we've experienced any of these things, we've tasted suffering for our faith. And if our default is to just avoid suffering, then it's important for us to ask the next question. How are we called to relate to suffering? And that's really what Peter takes on in this passage. So first, Peter invites us to embrace suffering as a blessing. That sounds really strange in our culture, but it's actually not a strange idea in Scripture. You can imagine Peter thinking about the Sermon on the Mount as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 5 is just one of many examples. At the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you hear words like these, do you ever think, Jesus, you don't really mean that, do you? That we're blessed when we're persecuted? That we should be happy when people say all kinds of evil against us and it's false? That we should rejoice and be glad to share in suffering? There's a story I heard that someone went to Mother Teresa one time and approached her and said, Mother Teresa, is it true that in America we don't suffer as much as other places of the world because we're a righteous nation? And she looked at this visitor and said, Oh no, I'm afraid you're so wrong. So the visitor said, why? What do you mean? And she said, I don't think you suffer because you're not worthy to suffer. In the Bible, it's a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer. It's an honor to join the fellowship of God's suffering saints. Think about who might be in that hall. Noah, Joseph, Moses, David. Isaiah, Daniel, Paul. Is it possible that we've misread the absence of suffering in our lives? Is it possible that we love comfort more than we love Christ? And if so, are we missing out on a really powerful form of God's blessing? I think we really fear that suffering is arbitrary and out of control. But if God is sovereign, our suffering is never out of his control. And if suffering won't last forever, which the Bible makes clear, then our vindication is coming. And if God uses suffering for our good and for his mission, then we can start to embrace it as evidence, not of his absence, but of his presence. And not of his frown, but of his favor. It's a really upside down way to think, but it's what the Bible is telling us. And Peter also invites us to embrace suffering as an opportunity to honor Christ. If you look at verses 14 and 15, Peter writes, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter's alluding to Isaiah 8, 12, and 13, where we read, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. So our struggle, according to Peter, revolves around one question. Whom shall we fear? And fear is so important because we tend to follow our greatest fear. So if we fear people the most, 
and what they could do to us, we will follow them, so to speak. And we will disobey the Lord as we follow people and we're scared of people. And sooner or later, we end up suffering for evil. But if the Lord is our greatest fear, if he does that in our hearts, we will follow him. And by his grace, we will obey the Lord. And sooner or later, it's likely we will suffer for doing good. And that's why Peter says, if it's God's will, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Fearing the Lord isn't running away in terror. It's actually drawing near in awe and worship. So Peter invites us to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. It's the same language as the Lord's Prayer, that God would be hallowed in our hearts. Hallowed be thy name. That he would be first in our hearts and drive out all the rivals that compete for the throne of our hearts. So ask yourself, what do I honor and sanctify in my heart? What controls me? What do I follow? When the heat gets turned up on us, whom do we fear and whom do we follow? Peter also calls us to embrace suffering as an opportunity to share the hope that we have in Christ. You can imagine younger Peter. He put his hope and his strength and his bravado. I'll never betray you, Jesus. He'd hoped also that Jesus would maybe give him a crown without a cross. But in the end, Jesus broke Peter down so that he could build him up. And I think Peter got to the place where he would sing with us, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And Peter knows now that suffering is a unique opportunity to share our hope with others. So in these verses, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is not just a word for the brilliant defenders of the faith, the apologists that look to this verse and say, make a defense. I am here to defend the faith. There are people like that. And we're grateful for them. But this is really a word for all believers. Peter's writing to the scattered church. Peter's showing us what it looks like to hold out the hope of Christ to the world. And for Peter, it's a beautiful mix of compelling words and a consistent life. So let's walk through what Peter says a few words at a time. I'm going to ask some questions because really he's given us a strategy for engaging. So I just want to ask, is this what our strategy looks like? First, Peter talks about always being prepared to make a defense. Peter assumes, Peter assumes we'll be engaged in the world that's hostile to our faith. He could have said, friends, it's, it's rough out there. So let's withdraw. Let's get in our holy huddle over here. And when I say break, we're just going to stay here. Because it's hard. And let's not go out there. But that's not what he says. He's, instead, he calls us to be prepared to engage, to defend what we believe all the time. So church, are we prepared? Are we praying for opportunities? Are we excited about that? And are we preparing ourselves so that when someone asks, what's different about you? We're ready. If you feel unprepared to share about your hope in Jesus, would you talk to someone about it? That would be a wonderful thing to talk about. How do I get prepared? Or if you feel like you could tell your story, but people wouldn't really understand because it's a bunch of Christian lingo, would you talk to someone about it? We can help each other figure out how to be ready and what to say. So Peter's inviting us to get ready and stay ready. And next, Peter says we should be ready to speak to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So note again, Peter assumes that the Christian life is going to be so distinct that unbelievers are going to be asking about it. 
Sometimes they'll be hostile. That's probably more what Peter's thinking here. Sometimes they'll be curious, which we see all the time around us, I think. Either way, Peter assumes people are going to be asking and you'll be answering. So are, we, are people asking? Do our lives beg the question? In the community and at school and at work, do our lives cause people to wonder? Are we scared and so we're blending in? Or are we excited so we're seeking to be a light and stand out in the right kind of way? Do we seem to be hoping for something so different from everyone else that they're confused or curious about it? And when people ask, can we tell the story? If someone asks, why do you hope in Jesus? What would we say? What are the reasons for the hope that's in us? And is that hope so alive that we really can't help speaking about it? But Peter says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So being ready to speak is important, but how we speak is really important too. You think about the gospel as a gift. The gospel is the greatest gift we could ever give to someone. And it's important when you're giving a gift, the gift itself really matters, but also the way you wrap it up and deliver it to someone, timing and delivery, that matters too. And so we need to ask, are we giving this gift to people, but also are we wrapping it up and delivering it in the right kind of way? So we need this bold humility to speak in a way that honors the Lord on the one hand, but also respects people on the other hand. People often who don't like what we have to say, and yet we still respect them. Recently a college student told me about his first session of a religious class, religious studies class. And so he he goes to class and the first thing the professor says to the class is raise your hand if you believe in absolute truth. And as a Christian, my friend was the only person in the class who raised his hand. And this professor proceeded to try to humiliate this college student for what he believes. So I heard the story, and when I heard the story, my first thought was, well, did you ask him? Is he absolutely sure that there are no absolutes? Think about it. I like that argument, but I'm not sure that that is gentleness and respect. There's a way that we can engage with people out of a desire to win or be right, where we can win the argument and still lose. Seems like Peter is pointing us more towards what does it look like to honor Christ and love our enemies, to suffer well when things get hard. For Peter, like I said, it looks like compelling words and a consistent life. Words that point to Jesus and a life that reflects him in the way that we engage. So we're never proclaiming to be perfect, but we believe that God's grace really changes us. So if we say Jesus is the difference in my life and we're not really all that different, There's a disconnect for people. The gospel is going to offend people. Peter knows that. I think what Peter's telling us is if the gospel is going to offend people, let it be the gospel. Let's pray that people aren't offended by how we share it or how we live it. Lord, help us. Suffering presents this unique opportunity to hold out Christ to the world, to show the world we love Christ more than we love comfort, but God isn't calling us to just go seek out suffering. That's not really what Peter's saying. Go suffer. He's essentially calling us to be faithful, to press on doing good and honoring Christ. And then if suffering is the result, to know if it's God's will, God's going to give you everything you need. And it might actually be good for you. As God has many times, he could use it to grow you. And he could also use it in the lives of others who don't know him.
So in a sense, it's really easy to just think about a new theology of suffering. Here we are and we think we're trying this on. It's a new theology of suffering. But if we really want to live this way, we need power. And that leads us to the last and really most important question. How does God himself relate to suffering? Look with me at verse 18. Peter writes, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he says all these things about our life of suffering. And then he says, for Christ also suffered. In other words, as you suffer, what you need to know is that Christ also suffered. So in the midst of suffering, Christianity offers us something that people of other faiths just don't have. And it's in this. Christ, in him, we have a God who suffered. It's remarkable. He doesn't stand far off. He comes and he suffers with us, yes, but for us. And Christ's suffering transforms our suffering and gives us an indestructible hope. So Christ's suffering changes how we relate to God. Christ suffered once and for all as the ultimate sacrifice to pay for our sins. It is finished, he said on the cross. He suffered as the righteous one for the unrighteous. This is just pure gospel that Peter is giving us. On the cross, all the punishment that my unrighteous life required fell on Jesus. And as Peter says, he was put to death in the flesh. He really died. But why? Why did he do it? Jesus suffered, Peter says, that he might bring us to God. That was the ultimate goal. If all we want, if you're sitting here this morning, I just want a clear conscience or I just want a payment for sins or tell me that I'm going to make it to heaven, but I don't really care about being brought to God, then we're missing the best part of the good news because Peter says Jesus died to get us to God, to bring us to himself, to unite us with himself so that his story becomes our story. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's the invitation today. And I hope it's attractive because where else are we going to go with our sin? And where else are we going to go to find the relationship that we ultimately long for, where we'll be accepted and changed, loved as we are in Christ? So if you, if you don't know Jesus, the invitation today is come to him who suffered for sins that he might bring us to God. And if you know him, you can rejoice whatever's going on in your life that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Because of Christ's sufferings, we have a relationship with God. But Christ's suffering also changes how we relate to suffering. Because for Jesus, suffering was not the end of the story. It was the beginning of an even greater story. If you think about our default, it wasn't Jesus' default. He wasn't seeking to avoid suffering. And he didn't come and just suffer. Just, I'm here just to suffer. He actually came and triumphed through suffering. He won the victory through suffering. So Peter says he was made alive in the spirit. He really rose again and he's gone into heaven. He really ascended. And now he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. In other words, he's conquered everything. So as we share in Christ's sufferings, we also share in his victory. When we're at school and we're mocked for being a Christian, when we're dating or engaged and people laugh at us for pursuing holiness or a different kind of relationship, when we're at work and it seems like people want us to compromise our integrity for the bottom line, or when we're ostracized or rejected or worse, we're sharing in Christ's sufferings and we're sharing in his victory. Peter has called us to submit to the powers of this world. 
which was a strange thing to hear some weeks ago. Because these powers can harm us. But now in this passage, Peter reminds us that these very powers that can harm us are ultimately subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered everything through his suffering. So we never face suffering without the certain hope of victory. And in Christ, we don't suffer as victims. We suffer as victors. We triumph through suffering with Christ. This week, I was reminded of the story of William Borden. I don't know if you know his name, but he was born in 1887, and he grew up as an heir to the family fortune. Think Borden Dairy Company, Elsie the Cow. He had a great setup for his life. After high school, his parents sent him on a trip around the world. Go see the world, experience the world. His parents never would have imagined what would happen on this trip because he came home and now he had this deep burden for the world's hurting people. And he had this deep desire to serve the Lord as a missionary. So he goes to college at Yale. He goes to seminary at Princeton. And when he finishes, he's moving forward with his plan to be a missionary. And where does he want to go? He wants to go to China to minister to Muslims. Not the easiest calling. One of his friends couldn't believe that Borden was throwing his life away as a missionary. But William pressed on. And so on his way to China, he stopped in Egypt to do some language study, which would help him as he got there to his field. And in God's strange providence, in Egypt, he contracted a form of meningitis. And so William Borden died in Egypt at age 25. He never made it to China. And you have to ask, was William Borden's life a waste? It really depends on your theology of suffering. So where are you? News of Borden's death spread around the world, and the Lord has used his story, encourage me, but also to inspire many people to extend themselves in the cause of Christ. So William Borden's faithfulness in his short life had a great impact. And friends, I think that is far greater than a long life with no impact. So if you visit Borden's gravesite, which is in Cairo, you'll find his epitaph. And at the end, there's an incredible statement that I really can't ever get out of my mind. It says on the stone there, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Why would Borden leave financial security and comfort and go do that? Why would Peter leave the fishing business and go follow Christ and go do that? Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Don't you want that to be our story? That people can't really make sense of our lives. Even if we're living right here. You don't have to go somewhere else. Even if we're living right here. People don't know what's going on in our lives. And they have to ask us. And when they ask us, all we have to offer them is Jesus. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. What if God really answers our prayers for our children? What if he really answers our prayers for us? What if God replaced our fear of suffering with a deep fear, love for him? What if he replaced our desire for comfort with a deeper desire for faithfulness? There's really no way to know what that might mean for us. But there's also no way to know what God might do through our lives as we seek by his grace to be faithful, no matter what comes. And these things we know, Jesus calls to us, as he did to Peter, come, follow me, and he'll be with us. So think about the last verse of this hymn we sang. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. 
From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the suffering of Christ and also for his victory, that through suffering he has triumphed. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that you call it to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Lord, would you give us wisdom to know what is leading our lives? Lord, and if we're controlled by the wrong kind of fear, would you implant yourself right there at the center of our lives? Lord, that we would set you apart, that we would honor Christ. Lord, that we would be able to say, till, till he returns or calls us home, here in the love and power of Christ we'll stand. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.